today we are recording our fifth podcast dedicated to the coronavirus and COVID-19 pandemic. While the numbers have surpassed 2 million cases and 115,000 deaths in the United States. As we discussed on the last episode, the U.S. is beginning to reopen and we are cautiously entering a new normal in which we try to balance our jobs, activities, and lives with the fact that this threat of infection is still out there. But so much uncertainty still remains. I'm your host, Brian James, Associate Professor at Rush University Medical Center, and this is Epidemiology Counts from the Society for Epidemiologic Research, a podcast that gives you up-to-date information on the state of health research straight from researchers who are deeply involved with this work. Over the past few months, through this podcast, we have strived to bring you the best information on this pandemic that we could. But we know that you all may have many questions that I have yet to ask of our experts. Therefore, we decided to do something different for this episode. Instead of our traditional podcast format, where I, the host, comes up with all of the questions, we wanted to have a Q&A for all of you to ask the questions and get answers directly from our infectious disease epidemiology experts, Justin and Michael. We posed this opportunity on Twitter and other outlets, and we now have a really great set of questions to discuss on today's podcast. So thank you to all of you that submitted questions. Also, I should say that this week was the week that SER, the Society for Epidemiologic Research, was supposed to have its in-person annual meeting. But due to the coronavirus, it has been moved to December. So this Q&A podcast was our way of doing something a little different and special to celebrate SER week. We really wanted to do this Q&A live, but couldn't figure out the logistics, so maybe in the future. So let's get to your questions. Once again, I'm joined by Justin Lessler from Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and Michael Mina from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Thanks for joining us on this Q&A session, guys. Happy to be here. Thanks. All right. Okay, so I have a really great set of questions here, and a lot of these I have been wondering myself. So I put them into clusters, and we're going to start out with the definitely the uh, cluster of questions I, I personally have received the most questions about, and that's about schools and kids. So let's get right into the first one. Should we reopen schools and daycares in the fall or even in the summer? And if so, how do we do it safely? So I think this is all of these questions get ballot balance of what's the value of the thing versus what's the risk. And I guess there's a question of when, and it's gonna vary about where you're at, and it's very about how intense the epidemic is. But, you know, school's important. Daycare is important. People, if you keep schools and daycares closed, for many people, you know, myself included, you're effectively telling them they can't work, yep. or at least have to reduce how much they work. So I think, in some sense, these things probably need to open up. Uh, how to do it safely and in the best manner is, a, I think, a big question. And, uh, and maybe they don't open up quite the way they were before. You know, it's going to, it's going to carry a risk. Everything we discuss is going to carry a risk. Mm -hmm. But you're balancing that risk versus the benefits. And I think we are mostly agreed most of us agree that education, you know, has a big benefit. Mm -hmm. Education and childcare it may, and may be worth the risk um, in a way that something like going to a bar might not be worth the risk. So, um, although a bar owner might not agree with that. Um, so Michael, what's your take on this? 
Yeah, there's, uh, I, I, I think there's a, a tremendous number of things that need to be considered. I, I fully agree. We have to, we have to figure out ways to do it as safely as possible. But I think, you know, the idea of just closing down schools for the foreseeable future into the fall and, and into next year just isn't, it's just not a realistic option, I think, um, to just have that be the decision. Uh, and for all the, for all the reasons uh, Justin just said, I mean, we, we have to figure out how to work with this virus in a way to, to keep our society running. Uh, we, we need to make sure that we're not making decisions to avoid the virus that are going to be uh, ultimately much worse than the virus would have been, for example, um, uh, through economic collapse or something because no parent in the country could work, um, as one example. Mm -hmm. uh, but we also have to be very cognizant of, of all of the other items that come into play as we start to open up schools bus drivers, you know, teachers, principals, all of the, there are lots of people involved with uh, the schooling system that uh, themselves would be at risk. And so I think one of the key things that we have to do to make sure we can open schools and keep them open safely is we, we just have to have good surveillance uh, put in place and we have to have good plans put in place. And uh, that's unfortunately something I continue to note is lacking. Uh, despite all the all of the the time that continues to pass, I don't see really solid plans being put in place across the country, mm. and I, I don't even really see solid surveillance plans being put in place uh, to know when outbreaks are happening, mm. to know when you need to sort of pivot and close things down temporarily, and then open them back up. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know that worries me that we continue to uh, just sort of talk about it, but but we don't necessarily see a lot of action happening in a lot of places. Right. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, it's, uh, you know, people have asked me if you, if you send your kid back to school and there's a case in the school, what would you do? And, you know, it's like, well, I don't know. That's a good question. What would we do? What, what would the school do? What would I do as a parent? What would the school system do? Um, there's not and a I really think, clear plan. And I think this is a place where, you know, it, the way public health works in our country becomes a very big challenge. Mm -hmm. Essentially, every jurisdiction down to the county, sometimes city, sometimes even district level is forced to go it alone mm -hmm. in terms of setting a policy. So, you know, your highly resourced school may have a very good policy for following up um, on a case and do things that make you think it's safe to keep your kid coming to school. Um, whereas another school across town with less resources or in a different part of the country with a different attitude about the virus may have a very different approach and where they're not being doing the things that you think would make it as safe and then maybe you do pull, pull your kid out. But also it's your personal situation. Like, you know, even though I think it's likely that, you know, over the course of this pandemic, there will be at least a few, you know, children dying from being infected in schools over the course of the United States. The numbers are probably going to be exceedingly low. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, still, that's it's still just so many, it's just so many kids, right? It's, mm -hmm. but, 
if you have a um, older person at home, many families depend on um, depend on people in their 60s, 70s, or even 80s to help with childcare at home. Mm -hmm. And if you have those people at home, I think the bigger question is what's their risk? Because mm -hmm. while almost every child is going to be who's infected will probably not even develop symptoms, even if they, if, if and that de almost definitely won't have severe illness. Um, the rates in the, I don't, I don't know if you remember, Michael, but I think in some, once you get up to 70s and 80s, death rates from infection get above, get in the 5, 10% range. Yikes, yeah. And, um, yeah, it's a really good point. So, you know, a lot of people asking about what to do with their kids are worried about their kids getting sick. And I think, Justin, your point is very well taken that, you know, maybe more scary for, you know, the people at home that the kids are coming home to, especially if you have older people in the household. Um, but it sounds like I'm trying to get answers for people. This is a really interesting discussion, but I think, I think, and I don't want to put words in your guys' mouth, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you're saying that probably we do need to reopen schools in the fall um, because there's just, there's just too many risks, non-infection risks, but, but more economic and educational um, reasons that, you know, that maybe counterbalance the risk of infection to kids. Is that a good way to summarize it? I think so. I, I think we just, uh, yeah. Uh, and we, we just have to really figure out how to do it in the safest way possible. And, and it shouldn't be seen, I think with all of this, it shouldn't be seen as an either or. It should be that we move into, we, we uh, learn how to adapt and, and uh, adopt adaptive strategies so that if outbreaks are to happen, we, we, maybe we do close things down for a short amount of time, get them under control, get people right. back in. And maybe it's going to be that kind of dance for a while. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just right. I think, yeah, if you to sum it up, what I say, it's like, yes, we open schools, but it can't be business as usual. Gotcha. Very, very good summary. So, uh, Justin, you got a little bit into this, that there may be different contexts. So you were kind of talking about um, geographic context. You know, I mean, if, you, if you're talking about school in a very dense urban environment as opposed to in a more um, a less dense you know, more rural environment maybe that may be one context but a, a context that um, that may matter is the age of the children right so our next question is should different strategies be used for kids of different ages preschools elementary middle schools high schools um, this is an interesting question to me because our preschool is, is year-round you know it's 12 months I have a child who's in preschool and I do plan to send her back to preschool, you know, sometime soon, earlier than the fall. Um, whereas, you know, people who have older children, the school doesn't start till fall, so maybe they can punt the decision till then. But, you know, do you think that there are different strategies depending on the age of the child? I think the, the, the age of the child, the, the, the different strategies could come in. It, older children have a lot of additional options Mm -hmm. or how to both go to school, I mean, similar to college uh, and, and other, you know, areas of life. I think high school, for example, if somebody's in a household uh, with a grandparent who lives with them, for example, mm -hmm. um, you know, 
that that would be a that would be a, a somewhat of a dangerous proposition if there is an outbreak going on in the school for that kid to come home, and so you know the, it at least affords more flexibility. Maybe that child or that high school student could uh, could actually attend classes through Zoom or right. or other means. You know, while the outbreak is getting under control, mm-hmm. you couldn't really ask uh, a second grader to do their classes through zoom and so i think that you do have different options uh through technology that that can become available right it should be taken into account as we look across the ages i I will say my kindergartner does zoom class has been doing zoom classes (laughs) and they're surprisingly effective (laughs) so does my preschooler but we're talking about an hour (laughs) mastered yeah really mastered i guess they use google groups but like they really mastered the but yeah, there's definitely been some innovative educational techniques that have come out of this lockdown, which is great. That being said, like, you know, Michael's absolutely right. And thinking about like what you can, I think there's this, this weird balance of like, you know, what you can ask kids to do, mm-hmm. like when they're at school. Like, I think you have a question about this about to come up, but like, yeah. are you going to ask a preschooler or kindergartner to use masks? Like, that seems insane to me. Right. Let's hit that. Uh, that but, uh, you know, but um, high schoolers certainly can use yeah. masks and yeah. be more social distanced. Uh, yeah. While, you know, right. So the strategies are going to be different. And also like the younger kids, like physiologically, we think there's some relationship between age and how this virus works and how, how like people might be sensitive to being infected or transmit. And uh, the younger kids are going to look, I mean, they're young kids, but the high schoolers might start looking a little bit more like adults. Oh, that's interesting. And, so there's a know, stratification. So maybe there's something going on there. Like, we don't really know for sure, but I think, you know, there, there's no question the strategies have to be different for different ages. Right. Well, so you were talking about difference in risk of infection for the younger kids versus older kids. But I think there's also the fact that as everyone who's listening to this who has very young children would say, it's also the amount of work it requires as a parent to parent from home when you have a four-year-old, for example, like I do as compared to a 10, 11-year-old. Um, oh, yeah. My, like, I, we brought my high school age niece up here to right. help us watch our young kids. Exactly. Right. So it's yeah. a very different Right. So uh, exactly. It's a different equation in terms of, you know, the risks that you may have to be willing to take. So, um, but you've mentioned this, so this is the next question. So let's jump right into it. Uh, Would the benefit of wearing a mask, um, albeit improperly among a group of preschoolers, outweigh the potential increased risk of uh, increased fomites, and you guys will describe what that word means in a second, via improper handling of those masks? Well, first tell them what a fomite is and then... (laughs) I'm reading the questions as they were sent to me. So, so the fomite is is referring to path picking pathogens that are on the surface. That you, on the surface. So it's really talking about, you know, is the uh, the 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 question was worded a little bit oddly, but I think it was you know improper wearing of masks with all of the caveats that come with wearing a mask, but improperly does that outweigh? the benefits or the, the dangers of not wearing a mask and having, right. uh, but particles all over the, all over the surfaces, I think. Yeah. I, I think it's, I, I think that, you know, if people wear masks, even improperly, uh, I don't think we should be, we, we need to get out of this. The perfect is the, you know, it, it needs mm-hmm. to be perfect. This was the problem that, you know, the CDC, if we remember a few months ago, 
the CDC was literally telling people not to wear a mask. Right. And, and, you know, mm -hmm. that I think was a huge mistake. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think we should, we shouldn't let imperfect mask wearing just mean don't wear masks. Uh, right. So I, I totally agree with you. Sorry to cut you off, but I think, I think this person was asking, um, because they're preschoolers, you know, because they're such young kids. They're, it's not about them improperly wearing the masks. It's like they'll be pulling it off half the time. They'll be touching their face more. It, a mask, lot. I think the mask, I could see in preschoolers up until about starting grade school, yeah. I could see this argument that like right. a mask. Well, you just said you thought it was insane. Jeff. I thought it was insane. I mean, that was, <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, I, right. I can see the argument because I see the argument like, you know, these kids are wearing a mask, they get it off of society, they'll take it off and they'll like wipe it on another kid, right? Like, right, exactly. Th this is like, it's not that, right? Like they can't intellectually necessarily follow yet the need for masks mm -hmm. and the mask itself could become an object of stuff. I think around kindergarten, maybe, you know, first grade, like I think that probably changes. But, mm -hmm. you know, this is... Uh, there are people who do behavioral studies with kids and this is a really quick low risk behavioral study. We yeah. can figure this out. Yeah, I've heard reports from my, my child's preschool. So she hasn't been going during this lockdown, but um, some of the first responders kids are still going to the preschool and apparently they're all wearing masks, three, four year olds, and they're, and they're supposedly perfectly fine wearing it. So I guess they got used to it pretty quick. Who knows? Yeah, if we, uh, there's a lot of parts of the world that that it's a, it's more normalized to wear a mask, and we do see kids. I mean, kids are pretty adaptable. You know, mm -hmm. we can't forget that. If it's right. if it's the first day they're wearing a mask, it will seem weird. They'll play with it. They'll you know, but you know, I don't I don't know how I, I you know, in terms of comfort and all these things. But I do think kids could potentially. Uh, use it in particular. I think if there's a known outbreak, if we actually detect that something's happening in a school, I think we should. You know, it's it probably won't hurt. Yeah, I guess my okay. argument is I think there's an age, right? I you know I kind of in my mind you're always thinking about your, like in my mind I'm thinking about my like 11 month old, right? Probably <laughs> not going to happen. Yeah, right. But right. like, uh, but uh, like there's probably an age cutoff. I don't know where the cutoff is. Yeah. I'm sure right, a behavioral science, you know, somebody who studies children and child behavior probably has a better sense of that. Right. Okay. But let's say that the kids adapt well and they, and they seem to be okay wearing a mask. Is that something you all would recommend for daycare and preschool settings? I, think <laughs> I wish you all could see their eyes are looking up at the sky. They're trying to figure it out. So I mean, ears if, are it, it, I think it could be part of it. And I, so it could be part-time like I think I think the idea of like making you know especially with kids about like you know having like closed units like you know already in at least the daycares I know of when my children go to or went to and go to you know there are small rooms with limited number of people mm -hmm. you know that the kids spend most of their time in right and you can make those smaller right yeah. I and mean, require more staff but you can make them smaller mm -hmm. in those rooms you know Maybe not, but maybe when they go out to the playground for play, go to any common areas, stuff like mm. that, maybe then. Like there, I think there are, once again, not as, as Michael was saying, it doesn't have to be like either or. Yep. It can be how do we, masks are a tool that do something to prevent transmission. 
you know, they're not, they're far from a perfect tool, but they're a tool that do something. Mm -hmm. And in different contexts, they are best used in different ways. And so there's, I, I believe there are creative ways you could probably find to use masks in these settings that mm -hmm. maybe don't require, you know, from the moment the child is dropped off to the moment right. they're picked up and taken home to yeah. have them have a mask on their face. That was what struck me. It's like, it's not, you know, getting my child to wear a mask would be fine, but for like eight hours, I mean, geez. Yeah. So, um, okay. Well, it sounds like, so for everyone listening, there's probably going to be a lot of kind of gray areas and all these questions and that's just how these things are but it sounds like mass probably would be a good idea but it's hard to know when the right age is for that and whether it's reasonable to ask children to wear masks for eight hours and uh, I think Justin your point is well taken that it really depends on the context of the actual school classroom if it's a very small environment with the same you know five ten kids you know maybe they don't need to wear a mask if that if they're the only five ten kids in that classroom from day to day, but with all the coronavirus things people are publishing, these are the types of studies I'd like to I'd like to see more of. Okay, cool. You know, like how do some of these things work in different age groups? So that's like some practical logistics stuff. Awesome. I should also tell the listeners that Justin and Michael are chatting with each other that they want to do this study right now. So hopefully we'll have these answers. <laughs> Not quite the paper we were talking about. But <laughs> well, one of these one of these questions spawns, uh, led to a paper discussion. So. Um, Let's see. Okay, the next question is, this is a broader question, but I think we're kind of getting to it. But we've been talking about schools, but obviously what kids do, especially in the summer, is a lot broader than just school. So, you know, what is the risk for outdoor summer kids activities like playgrounds? You mentioned going to a playground earlier, uh, pools, play dates. And we have a, a question specifically about pools in a second, so maybe we'll punt on that one. But playgrounds, play dates, summer camps, you know, what, what, what do you guys think? I think, I mean, be, being outside and being in well-ventilated areas is generally s seeming to be a, to, to decrease risk quite a bit. Uh, it falls in the same category. I think, you know, not allowing these things has its, tr has trade-offs and mm -hmm. in some, sometimes uh, those trade-offs can be pretty severe. And for example, not allowing children to go and and uh, interact with other kids for months and months or potentially years, depending on you know, how long we remain in, in this sort of, in this kind of state. You know, that will have very severe consequences potentially that we just don't understand because this would all be fairly unprecedented. And so I think uh, you know, getting, allowing kids to get outside, to be active, to be playing with other kids, I just think is absolutely essential. Cool. Yeah, I, I don't know that it's uh, as unprecedented as you, you think. Like I know during polio outbreaks um, back when my parents were growing up, it was common for like everybody to stop kids from playing with each other during polio outbreaks. And so, but that being said, I agree that, you know, outdoor activities is structured right and appropriately um, managed, I think, are probably one of the safer things to do. But, you know, like maybe like normally you'd have like, let's say you were having a pool party or, or, or like some outdoor get together, like all you would have the kids play together on the playground and then you'd have like snacks or a cake or something afterwards. Mm -hmm. Like maybe skip that snacks and cake. <laughs> right. Right? Or have everybody bring their own and sit with just their families. Gotcha. Like, yeah. you know, 
you, like there, there are things we can do to decrease the risk because because also that snacks and cake that brings all the adults like mm -hmm. the kids maybe aren't as risk bigger higher risk but all those adults they're they're like you know it's like the opposite of normal diseases it's the adults <laughs> we have to keep away from each other not the kids. <laughs> I, right. I do think that you know what especially for these types of things i i do advocate or think that you know the whole pod idea you have a group of like mm -hmm. you have a group a social circle that will satisfy people's sort of social needs kids will have a few friends that they play with uh you know adults will be friends with the parents or or whatever it might be mm -hmm. and you know that's a way to and everyone is kind of on the same page everyone in your pod you know sort of the types of risks that the other people in the pod are maybe necessarily taking and you can make decisions appropriately i think that this is these are at least some ways that can help uh if an outbreak starts to happen or if one kid does get infected you know it hopefully won't spread broadly but also then people can feel at least a little bit uh more safe knowing that hey this kid you know i have a vulnerable person in my house but my child needs to have friends to play with so mm -hmm. there's a pact between this pod to say look this individual as an elderly person living with them you know, everyone else that they're choosing to spend a time with just is also on board with recognizing the need to really be safe. And I think that, you know, there, there are ways to do it. And, and that kind of goes, I think, across all the ages, potentially right. even to college, where maybe you actually bring kids back to school and colleges in, in like social pods. Mm -hmm. You know, those are some of the discussions. Yeah. I've, been, I've been saying we should be Harry Pottering it for college coming back. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Your houses, you everyone have, has their own You house. need to have your houses, you know, okay. have them relatively small and have them do everything together. That's really interesting. Like, you know, it's like also forget, kind of frightening. Forget diversity in majors <laughs> in your like dorm wings. Like yeah. you want all the people who are taking all the same year of all the same program together. So wow. they do everything together. Yeah. Uh, and because that, I think it has two, two effects, right? One, it gives this insular community that can have social interaction uh, and this is true for both like the families and, and the school stuff. It gives you this insular community that can have social interactions that, uh, you know, that ha that like has, um, that, you know, can sort of be walled off a little bit from the outside. Mm -hmm. It's harder for the virus to get into that community. Mm -hmm. But also it gives like this pool of people um, that if one of them is positive, you know, tests positive or develops symptoms, Mm -hmm. You know that the whole, because it's a highly highly connected pool, you know that whole pool of people is likely at risk. Has to all you be know exactly who you need to intervene on to try mm -hmm. to stop transmission. Yeah. So, you know, if you do this pod idea and one person and one family gets sick, that means all the other families should understand that they probably need to quarantine themselves now because they're at risk of putting the rest of the community and the rest of the pod potentially at risk or I in a school. Yeah. Right, because with, I know this is getting off ahead. I don't even know if this question's here, but like, no. off your head, but like, right, one of the problems with colleges is the social networks and social interactions are so complex mm -hmm. that if you ever wanted to use contact tracing as a solution when somebody got sick in a college, the way we normally structure structured them, yeah. like, I just feel like you end up quarantining like hundreds and hundreds of people every time there was a case. Right. And, it's not, it doesn't seem practical to me. Whereas, so I think making the structures 
are finding strategies not just so that we can prevent infection, but when there's an infection, we can better respond might be a fruitful strategy, fruitful approach going forward. I love this pod idea. I've been endorsing it for a while. And I think we're at that point where, you know, complete lockdown to just your household is not realistic anymore, but completely going back to normal, interacting with everyone out on the street is not, not either. That's not the way to go. And, you know, these structured pod networks, I think is a really nice idea. Now, let me ask you this because this someone multiple multiple people have asked me about summer camp and i i actually you know have been thinking that this pod idea could be the answer to summer camps i know a lot of summer camps have canceled this year for you know obvious reasons but i was kind of thinking you know if you have these overnight camps where all these kids come in if you you know maybe you have all the kids quarantine for a week or so before and then they all come in, they're in this closed environment, no one comes in or out, is it really that dangerous? As long as you've done that, you know, that pre-summer camp quarantine, I think that's the big if, right? Um, but I don't know, to me, it's like, it's, it's all so controlled that would it be that risky? Well, in a lot of these settings, um, it's oftentimes, that this kind of thing comes up and uh, it's oftentimes the staff and you know people who are working that you know have the potential to bring it in bring it out you know bring it back to families and sure. and i think if you can control that in a really significant way uh and then i think uh, then i agree and the other thing is i think it's definitely worth looking at what's the what's the community prevalence around the areas where where these um, camps and whether it's colleges or camps or whatever it might be are, is mm -hmm. are taking place if community prevalence is extraordinarily low and, and you know, something like the, the approach you just mentioned, which is having everyone quarantine or at least tested multiple times right after they arrive, mm -hmm. uh, you know, maybe you have daily testing or every other day mm -hmm. testing for the first week to ensure that everyone is free of uh, the virus, you know, and, and you then couple that with very low community transmission where the camp is located, then, right. you know, at the end of the day, you have pretty low risk of the mm -hmm. virus entering in. Yes. And, uh, and so I, I think that, that these things, that there are ways to, nothing comes with no, without any risk, right. but I think, you know, there are ways that we can think through getting these things opened. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I would say something, it comes back to something I said earlier, like, we, right, like, as Michael said, nothing comes without any risk. And, like, but, but I think we do need to put the risk, like part of this whole thing is about putting the risks from this disease in context. Mm -hmm. And, you know, but part of that putting the risk in context means that we need to respond correctly when something does happen, right? Mm -hmm. if, if we do, I mean, if all the summer camps in the country opened, I promise there would be at least one large outbreak of COVID at summer camp that resulted in the very least some children being hospitalized. Right, right. Maybe not a lot, you know, maybe just one or two, but, you know, you kind of reacted like this when I mentioned that, like, there will probably be a child that dies in the country <laughs> related to the schools reopening, right? Like, like, I, scary I saying, like thought of any, any of child dying. In all the countries, right? Like, sure. This is less who are going to die from traffic than they're going to die from traffic accidents on the way to school, right? right? Very like, good point. Yeah. Um, so the, or, you know, so I think we need to, part of putting the risk in context is putting the risk in context and understanding that things will be happening 
if we do harm mitigation measures, things will happen and we have to, and our goal, we have to respond appropriately when those happen in such a ways that reduce further harm instead mm -hmm. of like freaking out. And, you know, I mean, this is getting maybe a little bit beyond the epidemiology, it sounds like, but it's not because the thing I think is- that's the point we're at here. Right, you know? because if you, if, right, like, so if, for instance, if the camp has a plan for when there's COVID, you know, when, when there's COVID, a COVID case occurs, mm -hmm. it's important that, you know, you follow the plan and not have all the parents showing up in their cars, <laughs> right, right, you know, back in the community, pulling their kids out, right, like, you know, unless that's, you know, like, it needs to be orderly, because that being orderly is, the plan is what allows us to do this without putting the rest of the community at risk and prevent lowering risk to the, to the other children. So if we're thinking about, for, from my perspective, if we're thinking about risk and we're thinking about risk mitigation and balancing these things, we have to accept, we both have to accept the risk like a priori, but we also mm -hmm. have to accept the risk in how we respond when something happens. Good point, very good point. Thank you. That's great. So, all right, let's turn to pools now. I've had a number of questions about pools. So, uh, a chlorine swimming pool is essentially a gigantic diluted bleach solution, which seems like a very inhospitable place for the virus. Should we be as concerned about using public pools as some other activities? What about kids attending pool parties? I think the, the issue with pools uh, isn't so much about, you know, swallowing the water and, and getting transmission through the water. Um, it, but essentially pools, um, unlike a field or, or a playground or something where kids can run everywhere, pools literally create a central yeah. thing where everyone gathers around and all the parents have to be gathered around making sure their kids aren't drowning. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think it's all the social aspects that happen around the pool. And, and then also the, you know, you have the shallow end, you have a whole lot of little kids and their parents usually all crowded into that, uh, yeah. you know, with their kids in their arms and things. And so uh, that I'm thinking about public pools here, but I, I do think that it's sort of anytime you create a nidus where people congregate, that's mm -hmm. probably going the other direction. I'd much prefer a playground where parents literally oftentimes sit back and watch in as the kids play around and they don't have to kind of be in there too often. And that's right. still a centralized thing, but. And this is an age thing, right? Like it might be different if you're talking like fourth or fifth graders who maybe can more or less be unsupervised. Uh, and, I, and I would say too, like the, 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 the pool party, like it's not so much, I mean, Michael makes a good point I hadn't really thought of, but I, my first thought when I read that was like, oh, I'm not so worried about them in the pool itself, but the pool party usually involves cake and usually involves like all these other things. Yeah. We, right? we know about your problem with cake, Justin. You, you right. made the point. Oh yeah. <laughs> no cake. It's just you. the coronavirus distribution <laughs> system. Exactly. Clearly. Sounds like it. <laughs> okay, so I excluding mean, the cake though. I joke, but like, you know, people actually you know, might still blow out candles. Like, oh, I mean, that's a good point. <laughs> blowing that candle out. Oh, God, I think about that every time. Before the coronavirus, those kids blowing the, on the cake. Oh, anyways. Yeah, no, so very good point. I think, I think the point you guys are making is that all of the activities around the pool, I'm also thinking about the activities in the pool. You know, it may be that the water is filled with chlorine and, you know, less likely to 
to spread germs and then maybe even the air. But the fact is kids are jumping all over each other in the pool, you know, like it's pretty hard to ki keep kids off of each other when they're playing in a pool, especially a public pool. So yeah, I think that's the point is that sure the chlorine may kill the virus, but you're, you're concentrating people in a smaller space. So good points. Okay. All right. Let's talk to, let's talk about some um, activities and, and, you know, broader than just for children, for all of us, adults as well, um, and travel. So, you know, what, what are your thoughts on traveling across the country and staying in a private home with four other couples who have traveled via car or plane? It sounds like a very specific question. Someone ha might have a plan and they're waiting for your response. <laughs> uh, it's sort of like the pod idea. I it's think the pod, if, yeah. if everyone is, especially if you're driving, and, and I've tried to say this because we get a lot of questions about this. And, you know, airports are places that, that are likely, you know, it's, I, I, perf I personally don't want to go into airports right now. Yeah. Um, so I think if people can drive, you know, it's pretty darn safe. You know, if you rent a house with a bunch of friends or, or you know, it's, I, I think that, and you're going to stay there for a week or two, go for it. You know, you, you want to make sure that everyone hasn't had any real exposure risk. Uh, there are some things, I, when I talk to people, you know, that have to be taken into account. If you're driving, you know, you're, you're probably going to have to go to a rest stop and, you know, just be aware and make sure that you're, try not to touch things at the rest stop, you know, mm -hmm. use hand sanitizer, do all of that, wear a mask. I think if one, one of the big pieces of information that we've really learned in the last uh, month, I would say, uh, maybe that's the, one of the most consequential is just how effective masks can be at stopping mm -hmm. spread. Uh, and, you know, given that they're, they're of course not foolproof, but given that uh, information it, get, it creates a lot of leeway to for people to be able to travel via car mm -hmm. and get to a place and and you know hunker down there with some friends on a vacation in a you know beach house or something mm -hmm. you know and then just but again keep the pot thing in mind so try to stay stay with your group right. cool um, I, yeah I, I agree I mean I, like my just like Michael said my, my first stop set thing I'd say is skip the plane right uh, you know, I've been telling people not to fly since, uh, you know, since like late January. <laughs> I so, can't believe we didn't get a question specifically about flying, by the way. So I'm glad you guys are talking about it because I wanted to ask you about it. So but, please uh, elaborate on that. Right. But, but I think, I mean, it's just, you're in, you're in a system, you're in a place with closed air circulation. I mean, it's a lot better than it was when there were some big plane transmissions of the flu in back in the 70s and 80s. But like, it's still, you know, it's still air research, you know, it's still a very closed environment. I, I don't think it's a great place to be if you- I actually read that planes aren't that dangerous. It's the airport that you really got to worry about. Uh, I think it's both. Yeah, uh, both. Yeah. I mean, think about the airport. It's really designed to funnel people into small mm -hmm. little spaces. I remember back in, it was January, I think, January, February. And, um, some of us were already, you know, monitoring the, the virus and things, at least the epidemiologists were. And, and I remember, I, I think it was um, Newark Airport, and I was just thinking, you know, just how many people were crowded to get into a terminal. And, you know, there are lines, and I think it was just a few flights were backed up, but it essentially yeah, made it like that. a wall of people. Ugh, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah so i mean but i think it also did, like this pack thing like I, i'd say even more like if you're going to do it like everybody needs to agree to say we're not we're gonna like self-quarantine a um we're in a self-quarantine for like a week or whatever you agree to you know mm -hmm. a week or two would be sensible right like we're gonna agree to self-quarantine before we come right right yeah. and then so you're pretty sure every, nobody's infected every you know these are people you trust you know everybody's been pretty careful right. nobody took the plane <laughs> uh, and uh i think that that is like a perfectly reasonable thing to cool. do Okay, now let's, uh, this question, full disclosure, is from me, because I need this answer. What are your thoughts on taking public transit in a densely populated city at this point? So even when I'm allowed to go back to the office, my only way to get there is by taking the CTA in Chicago. So this is what freaks me out the most. You know, when can I safely get on the L again or get on the bus again? Never. <laughs> I think it's it's hard. I mean, it's it's um, understanding that some people are going to have to take public transit. Uh, but you know, if it's crowded, uh, I just keep you know. I always picture the subway in New York, or you know, uh, I I don't know when it when it's going to be safe. It's it's a it's a clear area where there can be. Um, it's closed. It's usually not ventilated well during, you know, when it's moving. And um, I'd say, you know, do your best to protect yourself by wearing masks correctly when you're on it. You know, try not to touch things, wash your hands. But uh, but essentially, it's um, I don't I don't think we have a good answer of when it's going to be a low risk zone. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I completely agree with Michael. It's right. It's. Hmm. I think, right, once again, it's right, like I'm a big supporter of public transit, right? There are a lot of reasons public transit is a public health good. Um, but, you know, if your main focus is personal risk, it's definitely going to be risky. I don't think right. there's any question about it. Well, mass, hand sanitizer, you know, anyways. All right. So in the interest of time, because I know we've been talking for a while, we've got a lot of questions left. We're not going to be able to get to all of them, but I want to get to some of the ones in some other segments. So um, let's talk about asymptomatic spread. This has been in the news a lot lately. There was this confusing uh, WHO statement about, you know, maybe asymptomatic individuals are not spreading it, and then they kind of walked it back. So, you know, what are your thoughts on, at, at this point, what do we know about asymptomatic spread of this disease? I just have to say, Maria is a friend of mine. The, uh -oh. the woman said that, and okay. I felt so bad for her because it was clear that, um, it was pretty clear that she was taken to mean something, also as official policy, taken to mean something like she wasn't. Gotcha. Well, we, we are not going to criticize or break down what she said, but the fact of the matter is people got maybe the wrong message that asymptomatic individuals maybe not be spreading. So, so tell, so set the record straight on what we know. Pre-symptomatic pre spread definitely happens and it's definitely important. Okay. My... You said pre-symptomatic. Pre-symptomatic spread, yes. people who eventually develop symptoms. So that's oh, okay. the question, right? Mm -hmm. There's no question that somebody not having symptoms is not a guarantee that they won't spread. Mm -hmm. I think with the asymptomatic spread, I think the evidence is less clear. Okay. And I also think there's an important thing, like 
if somebody's spreading asymptomatically, I think the vast majority of people who spread asymptomatically or who are asymptomatically infected are probably less likely to spread to spread the virus if mm. they spread it at all. Okay. But that doesn't mean there aren't exceptions and that those exceptions couldn't infect a lot of people. Right. Because, and I think the problem, so, go ahead. It's the question of the number, you know, the likelihood of any given asymptomatic person to spread might be quite low, but the damage that, an asymptom that a single a person who did happen to shed virus asymptomatically, and we, we can get into like what it means to be asymptomatic in a second, right? right. Uh, but that the is likelihood the of uh, you know, a person who is, you know, quote unquote asymptomatic you know, who does happen to spread the, 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 imp the implications of what they could do, mm -hmm. um, you know, how, how widely they could spread the virus is big. So I think it has to be taken, even if the num even if it's a rare event and the number of people who do it is very low, I think mm -hmm. it has to be, be taken seriously. Also, right. functionally from a public health standpoint, you know, from a surveillance standpoint, for me deciding what to do when I have with the person sitting in front of me, mm -hmm. what's the difference between pre-symptomatic and asymptomatic? I yeah. don't know. You don't know what's going to happen five future. days from now. That, that's right? what I've always wondered. So, yeah. 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 Okay. Michael, you have any points on that? Or No, I, I agree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was the, the very next question was like, how would we discern between asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic? You know, mild symptoms could be dismissed, forgotten, mislabeled for something else. And I think I think that's exactly what you're getting at, Justin, that it's almost impossible to know at this given time whether someone is going to be asymptomatic two, three weeks from now, or if they're just in their pre-symptomatic stage. So it's a really hard thing to discern. Okay, so um, let me move on to this question. Has there been any research uh, or studies that address the fact that although people continue to test positive for COVID-19, there continues to be a decline in hospitalization um, are people not getting sick or do we know how to manage their symptoms better? So a lot of that is occurring as a result of the way that we're testing. So mm -hmm. anytime we continue increasing testing, we essentially we moved uh, from, a, from a very strict, uh, you know, earlier in the epidemic, mm -hmm. it was extraordinarily strict about who gets tested and you pretty much had to be very symptomatic you had to have all these risk factors for having coronavirus, and that's how you got tested. So of course you were gonna have higher rates of, of hospitalization at that point in time. Now we've essentially brought uh, testing, uh, is no longer the, it's actually, I would say supply of testing, not access, but supply of testing exceeds demand at the moment. Mm. Unfortunately, part of the demand is low because people aren't getting access, mm -hmm. uh, but regardless, um, we see that there's uh, that that there are, the testing that is being done is increasingly screening programs, finding people who are asymptomatic, you know, finding people who are you know didn't necessarily thought maybe possibly they were they had coronavirus and then they do. So it's just been a real shift, and so I wouldn't read too much into the changing paradigm or the changing dynamics of how many, what fraction are going to the hospital mm -hmm. as sort of proof that this virus has morphed or something. It's really, I think, much more driven by our testing practices gotcha. and she's getting called positive. Cool, thanks. Yeah, uh, can, I, can I just say one sure. more thing on that? Like the, there's delays, right? So there's a delay between 
when people between when cases occur and when people get tested, the delay between when people get tested and when people you know go to the get hospitalized, and there's delay between when people get hospitalized and when people die. Mm -hmm. So you know when you see an increase in confirmed cases through testing, you won't expect to see the corresponding increase in hospitalizations for a little bit after that. You know. Mm -hmm. Uh, that will be close, and you certainly won't be expect to see the corresponding increase in deaths from you know for a couple of weeks. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so there's always going to be a lag. There's going to be a lag, and this gets to uh, a question Sue asked before uh, before we started, right? Mm -hmm. And that is, uh, you know, like or when should you worry? And I think you have to be careful about waiting till you see a spike in deaths or hospitalizations. To worry about your community. If your if your sense is that people aren't being safe in your community, and you know there's any virus out there, you're not like living in New Zealand where they've like managed to get it off the entire, you know, um, island. Like, you maybe that that's a time to maybe increase your caution. You know, I I, I just you know I think it's the by the time you're really seeing seeing the signal of a surge, the surge has already begun and is well underway. Wow. Yeah, very good point. Okay, in the interest of time, man, we have so many good questions left, but we're not going to be able to get to them. We're going to ask one more question that I think is on many people's minds, and we're going to get the word right from the experts here. So where are we at with a vaccine? Dr. Fauci recently seemed optimistic that we'll have one by next year, which personally, as the host of this podcast, I was blown away by him saying, does this seem realistic to you? So every, I mean, literally the program to get the vaccine approved is called Project Warp Speed or, or you know, <laughs> so, uh, and that is, by next year. so we've seen some promising results from Moderna uh, recently, and uh, it hasn't been huge numbers of results by any means, but they have been promising. We know that the vaccine can, can result in neutralizing antibodies. Uh, we see decent results in animal models from the vaccine. So at least that, that part, that sort of basic first hurdle is accounted for. Uh, and the thing that I see, you know, I, I mean, I personally think that the vaccine, almost regardless of what happens next uh, in the phase two, I mean, they're already planning phase three, they barely finished phase one. Uh, I don't even know if they finished phase one, actually, it's just phase two yes. started in the middle of phase one and phase three is being started soon. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think that, uh, one way or another, I think that this vaccine is actually going to uh, come to market. I think it would take a pretty extreme act, which it, normally a vaccine gets shut down pretty easily with any signal. You know, a lot most vaccines don't don't make it this. You know, don't make it as far as this one's made it. Um, I think there's been there's so much momentum behind this Moderna vaccine uh, and some others that even if it doesn't work as well as we would hope, as long as it doesn't have serious risk risk right. profiles associated with it, I think we should assume that we will see a vaccine become increasingly available in 2021, wow. uh, which would fit his timeline. You know, back in January, there was this idea that, uh, that within 12 to 18 months, it would be, uh, become available. It's happened faster than anyone I think could have imagined. Um, I think that the real question will be, you know, is it going to be the perfect vaccine? Mm -hmm. we, we don't know, you know, it, probably not. But will it have some efficacy, you know, mm -hmm. probably some. And I do think, you know, barring some serious 
some serious risk profiles that that could pop up in phase three hmm. um, or phase two. You know, I I personally think that the momentum is so great that it will probably go through. Yeah. That, and that, you know, probably a year from now, we might be having another podcast about whether we can just go completely back to normal because this vaccine's available if it's not actually the most efficacious vaccine that you could imagine. So that's, yeah, that could yeah. set us up for some, you know, interesting questions then too. I mean, even a low efficacy vaccine, that's right, true. for population, it like might not yeah. make that big an impact on your personal risk could make a significant impact on your population risk. Do I do worry, like as you're hinting at Brian, about like the social reaction to a vaccine that doesn't work? Right. I, I, I think I'm less- The silver bullet. Right, I'm, I'm slightly less optimistic than Michael. I, I, I think he's right that there's tremendous pressures and stuff like that, but I suspect that a, a phase three trial that like, doesn't that goes poorly might um i could see the narrative changing around that like even if it goes poorly not because of side effects but because of low efficacy mm. but there's a lot i mean i think i think we have the best bet um and, and and just for full disclosure here like michael's a far better immunologist than i am like by you know more orders of magnitude than can be written down uh but uh like, I think, you know, I think we have, you know, both because there's some promising candidates, but because of the number of sort of darts we're throwing at the board mm -hmm. all at once, I don't think there's ever been a case this has happened where there's, you know, you know so many candidates going through so quickly all mm -hmm. at the same time with like tremendous funding behind right. them. Right. Uh, that we're more likely to hit in that time frame than ever before. But also, there's no coronavirus vaccine out there and coronavirus and now coronaviruses don't appear to like provide any terms of any type of long-term immunity yikes is so, that right okay yeah, so or it, it's a it's more nuanced than that like, okay. i don't think we have time to get into it. <laughs> yeah, i was like i don't want to end on that point this is a little scary with, with the normal circulating coronaviruses you can be infected multiple times right? mm -hmm. and i think the question is so I guess, I guess it's like the question is, will we have a vaccine? And I think Michael was answering that question. Mm -hmm. And then there's the question, are we gonna have the vaccine we're all dreaming of that when we have it, life can go back to normal and we can forget this thing exists? Yeah. That I'm far less optimistic of. By next year, you don't think that that silver bullet is coming. Do you, and you're, it sounds like you're a little concerned that that silver bullet may never be coming based on how vaccines work for coronaviruses. I mean, I hope, I hope we'll get there, but I don't think it's a guarantee. Hmm. I, I would say that, you know, that there's been so much focus on the vaccine. I'll, I'll say two things about it. Hmm. One, I think it really drives home the need that we get, you know, serol serological testing needs to get up and running so that we can like continue monitoring it, understand, you know, immunological profiles surrounding vaccines and who's still susceptible, things like that. But I think the other piece that's going to really, you know, could throw a twist in, in all of this is if we get good neutralizing monoclonal antibody therapies or something like that, you know, all of a sudden you don't need a vaccine to be able to feel, to be able to take much greater risks as a society mm. in terms of, uh, Interesting point. in terms of, um, you know, how we're dealing with this virus. If there's a good 
reliable therapeutic. And even you know, monoclonal antibodies can have very long half-lives, so they can actually be given prophylactically hmm. and almost act like a temporary vaccine. Uh, and so I think you know, we can't lose sight of the idea that monoclonals are, you know, the vaccines are getting all the press, but monoclonals are coming. Hmm. And, you know, we know all about how to produce them and how to pull them out, how to pull people's plasma cells out, clone, hmm. clone the receptors and, and produce new monoclonal antibodies. Uh, so I think everyone, should, you know, we should be keeping our eyes on, on the therapies that are going to come out to mitigate um, pathogenesis and, and uh, effects of the virus just mm -hmm. as much as we're following the vaccine. I mean, and along those lines, like I, I absolutely agree with Michael, like th those, those are, you know, from my limited understanding that seem to be the most promising route as well, or very promising, like almost definitely give some benefit route as well. But like, if we have, you know, we often are thinking about this, about the one thing that tackles it all in one go. But if we have five things that each have a 20%, you know, cut off 20% of the, you know, mortality um, multiplicatively, like, you know, that's just as good, hmm. okay. right? And so, you know, like we don't have to necessarily be hoping for the thing. We have, you know, lots of things that help could be very, um, could make a big impact in the future course of this pandemic. Awesome. Okay, well, that's a better place to end this on an optimistic note as opposed to a pessimistic note. So unfortunately, that's all the time we have questions for right now. We have so many good ones that I didn't get to. So I apologize if you posted a question and we didn't get to it. Maybe we'll be able to do this again in the, in the near future. But for now, I'd like to thank Dr. Justin Lessler and Michael Mina for, you know, I did this before. I would like to thank doctors, Justin Lessler and Michael Mina for participating in this Q&A. It was incredibly informative. I mean, definitely for me, I learned a lot. And I hope all of you listening had some of your questions answered. Um, I'd like to thank Sue Bevan for producing the show. And before we go, if you're an epidemiologist, I strongly recommend you consider becoming a member of SCR. Membership at the Society for Epidemiologic Research gives you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which we hope will be held in Boston in December, and access to the SCR library, which gives you access to some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. Find out more at epiresearch.org. We appreciate you listening. We'll be back with another episode soon.